you know, I, I was I was going to go back this one thing because I'm on conversation time. So found, I was just going to give one example. So if you're interested, the show found that launched in 2015 on the History Channel. Actually, you can find it on YouTube. They they launched all of the episodes like three months ago, so they're free. One of the coolest ones we actually were. I was trying to talk about proving, you know, believing something is natural before cultural. Yes. So mm-hmm. he's traveled for nine months all throughout the state with all the different hosts. And we went to these places where people had unique artifacts and they wanted answers. And sometimes it's just, it's just really hard, as you know, as you guys as experts, to go and just identify artifacts. It, it, it takes time. Do good science and to do good identification, it takes time. And a lot of times you don't get paid for that time. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm, not a, I'm not so economically driven. I, I do my work because I love what I do. I'm really passionate about the past. I'm passionate about records and understanding them. Um, but we went and we talked to a guy named Bub. <laughs> Bub, <laughs> Bub lived in North Dakota, and he's a flax and canola farmer, and he had a couple other um, sort of industries in there. And, you know, every, every time they clear a new field, they make rock piles because they don't want their combines and equipment to get all beaten up. And so Bub's inside his huge machine, and all of a sudden, of all of the rocks, one really catches his eye, and he gets out of his combine, he rolls down, and he picks up this huge boulder, and it looks like it's got writing onto it. You know, legitimate writing, there's, there's lines and marks, and it, 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 it really, you know, anybody with a trained or untrained eye would be interested in it. It stands out, right? Yeah. So Bub had all these ideas of anything from because we we play that game of equifinality. Equifinality is huge in archaeology. The idea of equifinality teaches us how many ways can the similar result have happened. So I can ask you how many ways did this conversation happen? Well, you headhunted me for it. I found you, <laughs> yeah. uh, Lore, who, who 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 helped us start this whole process. She's the one that that picked us. Yeah. Um, there could be a multiple ways that this conversation happens. So we have to tease out, okay, what what are the what are the null hypotheses that this conversation came to be? Mm-hmm. So I typically come in there with my attitude, oh, this is natural before cultural. Bub went, this is all cultural before natural. So Bub said it could be aliens. <laughs> we had we had our <laughs> We had argued it could be a script from the ancient Celtic people. We had argued that it was something completely rare or, 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 or different, that it was made in a natural process. So we have a PhD, a really famous Minnesotan geologist come, who's the head of the Minnesota Geology Department there. He's outstanding, outstanding man. And he came in there right away and said, oh, this is a glacier stone, right? That oh. was <laughs> process. It's been weathering through time. These Little lines are tall tale signs of this stone, you know, sort of decaying through time. And he's got, you know, he's got his reference collection to show a similar process. So when I went back to Bub, what we realized is this stone was probably around two, probably during the Precambrian period, you know, 2.5 billion years old. Yeah. You know, like yeah. a really exceptional geological piece. And it was probably the oldest thing we saw in the whole program was this one stone. And it just shows that, that there are multiple interpretations. But once you have that one expert that can identify it with his evidence and observation, that's what we need to stick with. And that was sort of the interesting story I thought about geology and, and approaching and outreaching geology to our public. 
you know, we, we need to outreach this information so people can tell the difference between the three types of stones. They can understand what weathering is. They can understand what petrogenesis is. And, and I think that that's just, that's just part of our, our job is, is, is to get that information out there. So that was sort of an interesting thing about, about found and, and my time with Bub. Did you ever find that, like, some people wouldn't accept the explanation? Or did were people like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's cool? I, I, I'd say more accepted, you know, more okay. actually felt we're the experts and we, we, you know, we're doing it for free. They're not paying anything to get this item sort of surveyed and sort of looked at. So we had a, we had others that perhaps pushed back a little bit because and we go back to that idea of cognitive dissidence that they've been mm-hmm. thinking about this way for 30 years and that's the way it is. I wanted, yeah, so. I wanted to ask you, I, I only had time to watch a few of the episodes, but the one with the Jim Bowie knife, <laughs> I have to ask you like <laughs> when, so you were under the impression like, oh, this is going to be cool. It's going to be a whole sample. And then like, I kind of saw your face, like whenever you saw that <laughs> the dude had, had chopped it to pieces. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was, he was a, a very unique individual. He was a family man. Yeah. Uh, this, this gentleman. Was was a religious man, and I can I can appreciate his desire to understand more about the piece, but that wouldn't be the that's not best practice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it'd be best for anybody. So, but it still tells a story. If we deal with artifact biographies, as we call them, or their life histories, that is still someone putting their sort of spin on that artifact. Um, when 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 we received the pieces, it was it was intimidating because. We, we had lost probably a lot of information. You know, he had cleaned it. So if there's any blood or residue or things that we can analyze, those things are gone. Mm. Um, but the most interesting thing is using the technology. We were able to get a small sample of the bone, uh, or excuse me, of the ivory, and, and that gave us a, a relatively decent date. I think it was something like 46,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah. That, that ivory was casted into the record, and someone came up longer and, uh, and then reuse that piece, you know, and that, that happens in Russia quite frequently, things old, old, you know, we call it the old wood problem, you know, the wood could have been deposited, uh, you know, for carbon-14, if you're using that analysis technique, which sort of measures the amount of radioactive decay is gone in that piece, because we all absorb carbon in our daily lives, um, you know, it was great, because it's, it's showing something that's older than almost the, the break of humanity, you know, like, People are still getting after materials, but old wood shows us that someone can go back in time, take a piece that's super older, and it doesn't really represent when that artifact was made. Yeah. So we call that the old wood problem, and it probably happens in, in other fields as well. So um, we have to be very, very, very cautious about that type of stuff. So I'm not saying that knife is 45,000 years old. What we're saying is that the material used to make the butt of the knife is 45,000 years. When they made that, did those people know that? No, it was probably a one-off puff that someone found, they re, re, reused that material uh, and, and created that knife. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, we, my, mom, my mom wasn't impressed because I actually swore on that show, uh, and I got beeped <laughs> out quite Because <so. laughs> well, your face was priceless, though, whenever you yeah. first saw that it was he just had chopped it up because it was eating at him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was getting too much for him to bear. His, and, th- and that just shows the curiosity of him. And that's a great to his, to his, to his credit. Yeah. You know, he was yeah. very, you can't let your curiosity damage your deposit, you know, and that's, <laughs> and that's where it gets, a, that's why I was most worried. I feel like that, like those kind of interactions, like you see how humans behave. And I know we are very, you know, in some ways very different than, you know, people that 
inhabited the island long ago. Um, but you you can use that to be like, for me as a geologist, I, I look at the rocks and I, I really feel for future geologists that have to look at what humans have done to the earth and try sure. to make sense of what happened. So I feel like though, like your interactions with people may, might could help your um, interpretation of how interactions happened on that island. I don't, I don't know. And I'm hoping we can talk about that coming up because I'm really interested to know what you studied there, how you, you were able to see like what kind of, maybe you could determine what kind of interactions happened between the different tribes. And it's just funny that we still like humans do very strange things and it's hard to interpret that even in modern day. Sure. Yeah. We're, we're, we're doing some really strange things right now. Let me tell you. Yeah. Um, so a lot, lot of questions there. I think that just to start out, one of the best things about working on, on an island, and an island, we some arguments have been made, it's like its own laboratory, islands and, and the development of humans on islands because it's sort of, they're isolated. They're, we might say they're sort of in a vacuum. It's very easy to see when materials from one place move into a new place. We can always go back to the sort of provenance argument, right, that, mm-hmm. that we can see unique signatures whether it be macroscopic, microscopic, or elemental, uh, how we're analyzing these stones, whatever technique we're using, you know, you, you can see when new material is brought into an island or material that is unique to one place of the island is brought to, to another place of the island. Now, it's, it's a little more difficult because on, on Rapa Nui, for example, we have four sources of obsidian. Now, Majorly, you can look at macroscopically and see the differences in what obsidian from the four sources was being used to make stone tools. That was that was very easy. Some people can look at it. You can put a you know a really strong flashlight on the edges, and you can see the different the differentiation in colors. Mm-hmm. So one of the common uh, quarries and sources is called Mongo Rito, which is is really a rhyolite sort of volcano. And then when rhyolite comes to the surface and breaks down as cool quickly, it becomes obsidian or dragon glass. Mm-hmm. So basically, all the dragon glass used in Game of Thrones comes from Rapa Nui. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until we were able to look at the elemental properties of each of these sources that we're able to better understand what material was used the most, what's being transported from one place of the island. And, and that's a huge limiting factor. If we look at the island, it's sort of divided by two confederations, the North Confederation and the South Confederation. And then in these confederations, we have multiple clans called Mata. Mata, M-A-T-A, Mata also means I. But what's really interesting is now not one clan has all the geological material that they need to create Ahu, Moai, and Tool. It's a limiting factor, okay? So... If this area is so divided through their territoriality and they have wealth, we know the boundaries, there's different platforms that are marking and different rock towers and petroglyphs, it's a whole controlled landscape. The only way that, and, and, and the thing is, all of the Moai, they're, they're the same. All the Moai, they come from one source, or 96% of the Moai come from one source, Ranoraraku, the tough quarry. But the Moai are found all throughout the island. The very famous pukau, or the top knots, the hats made of red scoria, they come, although there's multiple sources of scoria, they, 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 they mostly just come from one source. 100 of these hats come from one area, but they're found all throughout. The obsidian, 70% of all the obsidian we actually find in archaeological context, come from one source. So one, 
these individuals are focusing their production in limited places that have success zones. So here, their purpose to these, um, these places that are going to give them the best zone out. Mm-hmm. When I started my research, we really didn't know what was the story about basalt. We really didn't know if one quarry was being used or multiple quarries. And right away, when I started my research, we found, you know, 84 sources. And then through time, I've built that up to about 92 sources because I'm constantly finding new little places. And in the short, what we found out was basalt was being used similarly like these other main quarries. So there's one main complex of, of quarries, of basalt quarries. Uh, the area is called Putoki-Toki, which basically means the whole of the Tokis. And the Tokis are what were used, they're adzes that were used to carve the statues. Mm. So just like obsidian, just like the Moai, just like the Scoria, basalt was being used intensively from one area, but was being you know removed from one area, but being used all around the island. And what's that to me, what was telling us is sort of communal use of stone. So I'm using what other individuals have, have put forward. And when you do archaeology, you always try to fill the archaeological record. There are gaps. You have to identify what is the gap, what don't we know, and then how can I fill that gap? So in 2014, I made the Rapanui Geochemical Project. And the goal was to use geochemistry, the geosciences, to better understand, Bri, your question about how are people interacting. Because as we, we see it, every volcano we can identify that as sort of it's a unique finger. Mm-hmm. And then any, any rock that I pull from there is going to have that unique fingerprint. They're going to have that geochemical signature. Now, we can use techniques, and this is, I know, a question you had asked in the email. We can use a, a couple different analytical techniques to understand those fingerprints. One includes PXRF or X-ray fluorescence, which basically shoots excited gamma rays into rocks. As my, my advisor would tell me, depending how the, the rock and its elements danced to those, yeah. <laughs> those, those gamma rays, that comes back into your monitor and it gives you uh, a sort of parts per million of what those elements are. Now, PXRF or XRF in general, it's a good technique, but to me it's more exploratory. It's when you're interested to find the more macro setting of your geological sample. We then increased our analytical precision and accuracy by using ICPMS, which is inductively coupled plasma mm-hmm. tree, but that as well has multiple techniques that you can use. The, the, the benefit of ICPMS is that it analyzes much more elements. So an XRF can maybe get you 31 elements for later statistical analysis. ICPMS gets you about 60. So right away, I'm increasing my sample size. I'm increasing the amount of elements that I can use to later um, sort of discriminate and then and then statistically analyze those elements to basically create this fingerprint. So the benefit with PXRF is it's mobile. You know, I can bring mm-hmm. it in the field. I, I, you know, everyone laughs because you're like, you're, I'm a total American with a gun in my hip, you know. <laughs> and here I and, 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 you know, and it's sort of testing these things. But I went to do better science, and I was the first person that actually took basaltic stone tools off Rapanui to analyze them in, okay. in context. That was new for science. So I, I, I had to, it took me five months to get permits. I had to go to, from the local community to the Chilean state community to the global community because I'm bringing these pieces all around the world so other people can look at them. 
And and that's the real thing about science. You know, you, you really have to find the best the best way to analyze your samples and to do it right. So yeah. these art travel from Rapa Nui to Tahiti to New Zealand to Brisbane and Australia to Ch- to, Sun- uh, to to Chicago where we did the analysis at the Field Museum back to Chile and then to Rapa Nui. So I had to you know I had to take out an insurance policy. I had to <laughs> you know you, you become like this you know this caretaker for this information. Uh, and it was it was it was something that I'll never forget that that process, and uh, that that's sort of why I, I I do what I did because it was it was novel it was new and it was looking at a stone that we hadn't really studied that well in the past. Everybody yeah. wants to study moai, everyone yeah. wants to study but the tools that are being used and uh, the, the raw material that's being used to make the tools that's what's honestly supporting the culture. Mm-hmm. The moai are a symbol. But what's important are the stone tools to cut your fish, to make the fish hooks to catch your fish, to be able to go in your garden and weed. So when we really look at Rapa Nui, what I try to do is see the small puzzle pieces and not the large puzzle pieces, because I feel that gives us more information about the island. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And it seems like you're taking – oh, no, I was just saying that you look past like the – I guess what a lot of people are like, oh, let's just study the the statues like you (laughs) – You saw the trees inside the forest, or or you saw the forest for the trees, <laughs> or whatever that is. So you you <laughs> took it and you just you looked past like the obvious. How about this, I saw the rocks from the volcano. Yeah, you, well, you saw the elements <laughs> inside the volcano. There it is. There it is. Or what did you say? Yeah. I saw these inside the cake. The there cake, you go. And it looks amazing, and it's a really beautiful cake. But if you didn't go in to understand the ingredients to make the cake. You're 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 not really uh, sort of appreciating the entire process, and Absolutely. I think that's one thing we do. Geology is try to be holistic. Geoarchaeology, I'm even more holistic because I'm linking sort of the hard sciences, and that's one thing we talked about in the lecture earlier. Um, you know that you have the the hard science that I'm getting from the the more geophysical analysis and geological analysis, but I'm also dealing with the softer sciences of anthropology and the social sciences because I need that social theory to fill in what the hard sciences are giving to me. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to use is the anthropological theory that has been established for, we'll say, you know, 150 years, and I'm trying to link in that theory as a bridge over to what the hard science and what is the, the patterns of, of, of geology telling me. And it's not, an, it's not always an easy thing. Um, but I, I'm doing the best I can, and I'm not going to stop work. And I've got some other projects on the go that I'm I'm going to continue this sort of way to, to understand the past. So, what do yeah. you what what where do you see your research going in the future? Okay, well, that's a very cool question because I'm doing something right now that I didn't think was going to happen. I'm actually working with Moai. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was approached by the Otago Museum, which is in Dunedin, in the South Island of New Zealand. Currently, there are um, 17 moai that are off the island that have been removed through colonialism and post-colonialism and, and different groups that came there and, and took the moai. So, for example, in the United States, in the mainland, we have two. In, in, the, um, in Washington, D.C., in Smithsonian, we have two moai that were taken off the island and, and by, the, by the ship, the Mohican, that was led by Paymaster Thompson. He was here in, in 1886. And in 1887, the United States got their first two moai. Well, 
other moai have been, have, have been moved off, and one of them ended up in, in New Zealand. There's actually two there, one in Auckland in the North Island, and that's, that's where I did my master's degree at the University of Auckland. Um, but I was approached by uh, a Maori man, um, a, a Maori taika man. That means he's, he's sort of you know a bicultural citizen. He's both Maori, but he's also a European descent person. And they have a moai there that was allegedly made, and the record says, from trachytes. Trachytes uh, mm-hmm. usually very high in, in silica and high in sort of uh, alkali sort of yeah. measurement. And I looked at this moai macroscopically, and, and I had some thin sections that were sent to me. And right away, I realized it's not trachytes, not at all. It's not no. even close. It's, it's a vesicular basalt. <laughs> and, lacking, and, lacking the orthoclase, I guess, in the case for. That, that, well, too, you know, and, and we didn't know. That it, was, it, is, it, it, just, it, it is a different type of basalt. Mm-hmm. So what they want to know is, you know, there, there's a big push in the Pacific for repatriation. So right now there's huge movements to return, for example, human bones back to their, their islands. And Rapa Nui in the last year, we've had Edi Tapuna, as we call them, the bones of the ancestor that have been brought back from places like Santiago, Chile, from the Contiki Museum in Norway and Oslo, and then from Te Papa, which is a museum in Wellington on the South Island. And they've been bringing back bones now for a bit because that's the way it should be. No bones from another place should you know, we, we have so many great techniques that you can do 3D scan, you can do all your analysis and then send these bones back. And that's what we're trying to do. But this group is possibly interested in, in can we remove a Moai back to Rapa Nui? But they are scientists and they want to know for sure where exactly in the island does this statue come from. And that's where I come in. Oh, nice. Because I can use some of these techniques like XRS, ICPMS. I can sample the geological heritage of the island and find more or less where is the finger to the fingerprint of this statue. If we can do that, they're very excited because some argument is maybe the statue was made in Tahiti because what we find historically is that there was a gentleman that ended up running the museum and the, or the island in the, in the historic period, and he was sending artifacts back to Tahiti where his mansion was from or his family's mansion was from. This is the Brander family. And one of the things he sent were three huge boxes of curiosities. I believe the Moai was in there. My colleague has a, a differing hypothesis, and he feels when uh, the Rapanui people went to Tahiti, they started to carve raw material there and make their own statues. Hmm. So this is a great thing of science. We both have our ideas of how the statue gets there. He has a hypothesis that this stone is Tahitian. I have a hypothesis that this stone is Rapa Nui, so now we can test these hypotheses. So to yeah. do that, we have, we have to build a geological map that samples define all the fingers, and then we have to take a sample from this, this statue. Now, lucky for us, the bottom of the statue has a break, has a crack, so there we can do a lot of non-invasive sampling because mm-hmm. I still need to destroy the sample. What we use is basically 10 milligrams of a sample, yeah. basically, your finger, which is not that much. You know, most people can't even see the hole that we create when we when we take these pieces off and we analyze them. So there's a possibility that if I can say, hey, okay, we know this stone because Tahiti has its own geochemical signatures about their volcanism. They have their they have their own magma chambers, they have their own milkshake that created the lava that was going to create the, the Tahitian sort of arc. Rapa Nui's got its own geochemical signature, and we can we can test that. 
And more so, there's other individuals that are creating huge basalt databases that were used to make stone tools and then used to make construction stones that I also can tap into. So what yeah. if I get back in both Christian and I and my, my colleagues, what if, what if both our hypotheses are wrong and this stone was <laughs> carved motus, right? So that's the benefit of using high-end analytical techniques is because we can really be focused on the questions that we're after and the hypothesis that we're forming. You're also creating a database for future research to be done as well, which is, so, which is awesome yeah. in itself. So that's where, that, you know, Alfred Wagner, he's, he's rolling in his grave. You know, he's yeah. like, why didn't people see this as a base for the future? I wasn't trying to change the world. I'm yeah. just trying to be. I'm just trying to be in the scientific ladder of moving forward. Yeah. Um, but obviously at that time, at that time, people still believe the world was only 4,004 years old, you know, and, that, and, that, and that's something else that we've got to realize, too, of, of how we see the, the world and, and, and around us. So that's sort of the, the new project that we're, that we're working on with the Rapa Nui Geochemical Project. That sounds awesome. I'm really jealous because I'm really into geochem, and this is like, I mean, <laughs> you're, you're solving a mystery. So it's like you get, like, the, you know, the rush of that, but you're getting to see science actually work and we, we kind of touched base on it last episode, but I, I kind of talked about clocks. And so you've mentioned these fingerprints, and they can kind of be used the same. So I read your paper in the Oceana, and, and so you all did the rubidium strontium, neodymium, samarium, and then the lead isotope. And yep. that's really cool because while we may have, you know, like, so you learn about all the, the rock types and in intro geology, but there's so many subsets of that and so it's it goes back to what we're talking about the how uh, complex that island is you're going to have different magma centers that come up and so you're going to have different interactions within that that create different signatures and it's really cool that you were able to hey i'm going to look at all these sources and then look at these tools and you, you can see where they came from just by looking at the radiogenic isotope you're um, spot on you're yeah. spot on it and to be honest with you, you know, because that's a multi-authored paper, right? Even though I'm lead author, that that more isotopic analysis and understanding the crystallization and that was actually done by a colleague that is in um, the University of Witwater, which is in South Africa. Oh, and cool. my advice, University of Queensland, he's the one that suggested we do one just to have one more sort of uh, rung on the ladder of science was to put in this idea of and, and, and it, 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 those, those, that, that's quite used quite frequently when we're dealing with especially oceanic basalt. So, again, I'm hoping someone grabs that. They find that I, I, I had still had questions about that result. And now someone needs to do and amplify that study and do that type of analysis for multiple sources on the island. And that's one thing I, I did not do because we started to focus uh, a little bit more on identifying the TSA type, the oh, total yeah. alkala type. Uh, alkaline types, uh, and then we we really started to focus on the stats to to look at the the diversity um, of, of those of those quarries and artifacts. Since you do have the rise there, the volcanism is not it kind of is not as active as other places, right? Do you feel like that has anything I, yeah, to do with it? Because it's 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 taking away a lot of that magma for that hotspot and taking it to produce the 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 new ocean at that rise. Do you feel like that has anything no, to do with the different, I guess, chemical analysis of the basalts there? Yep. So we, we've been off. So the, what we'll see is we've been off. Rapa Nui started volcanism about 780,000 years ago. But remember, that's a tail end project or tail end product of 
30 million years of activity, geodynamic activity in this area. We see about 5 million years ago, this Easter microplate is starting to move, and it's starting to push this plate, the, the Nazca plate, towards uh, South America. And then we start to see the island be formed in three phases between 800,000 years ago. But about 100 and 110, 100,000 years ago, the volcanism stopped. So Rapa Nui is unique. It's not like a Hawaii or a Vanuatu where people had a relationship to moving lava. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why in Hawaii mm-hmm. you have you have the goddess Pele, you know, that she was so destructive. She can be, she could, she could wipe us all out and, and she was mad. Um, and, and because the, the Hawaiians had a relationship because they saw active volcanism, the Rapa Nui didn't. Yeah. So there, there, there is some Polynesians, not all of them know what, you know, at least on Rapa Nui, know what active volcanism was because when they got there, volcanism had stopped 100,000 years ago. Okay. So yeah. volcanism okay. stopped 100,000 years ago, but now we have, all of the secondary processes of weathering, right? Rapa Nui has a salty, you know, because we're so close to the ocean. You yeah. have salt sitting inside these rocks. We have the wind. You have the waves. You have a lot of sort of post-depositional processes that also change the rock, its chemical composition. That's why when we do the ICPMS, it's nice. We try to get at the heart of the rock. So what the ICPMS does is it has a, a laser, a very concentrated laser, and what that laser tries to do for the first 10 seconds is basically burn, we'll say use the word burn, the, the outer cortex of that stone. So it's not being, it's not analyzing these secondary processes that happen to these stones through time. So hmm. by, that, that's why using the laser sometimes is really nice. When you use the, the XRF and you use the gun, you could put it onto something that's a really relatively new chemical change or mechanical weathering change that's going to affect those elements as well as they're, you know, we'll say they're breaking down, decomposing, the minerals are more, the ones that are stronger can have a different reading. So that's the benefit of ICPMS is using that laser. Um, it, it, it sort of gets that a pure sample, and that's what you're all yeah. Really at, right? That's, so that's a really good point for people that are going to pursue geology or, or geoarchaeology is you have to be careful where you're sampling it, what, what, where you're sampling on your sample, because like you said, it's, you're close to seawater. And so one of the fingerprints we talked about was the rubidium strontium and the 87 strontium, 86 strontium. And because of that seawater interaction, it could push it, the ratio to be artificially, basically the, the seawater will push it to a more continental crust type signature. So if you sampled at like the outer rim, then you're going to get a different signature than the center. That's, I, I did have a question. So you y'all use the ICPMS. Stay with that, but that's really important what you just said there. So let's bring that more into my field in archaeology. We also, when we're analyzing carbon-14, we try to stay away from animals or things that are close to the ocean because that, that, that you, have the, you have this sort of effect. You have the ocean effect where that will greatly change the amount of carbon that's also uh, absorbed. So, you know, oh, that yeah. what you're dealing with in that way is, is also talking about uh, carbon-14 dating, that you're going to basically, we can say it's contaminated in a way. We'll just use mm-hmm. that word. That it's, it's more contaminated. It's not a true car. It's not absorbing the true, you know, change between the carbon-12, 13 to 14. It's a different process because it's closer to that, that marine reserve. So we have a marine calibration uh, rate. So when I see mm-hmm. that are giving me carbon-14 about seabirds or sea mammals, 
I know there needs to be a relatively large calibration on that because that needs to take in consideration the absorption of carbon close to ocean environment. What I prefer is finding like, you know, something that was grown on the island, a small stick, you know, something, a charcoal piece that was used from, from, from a, a wood, because those things are not going to be so steep. They're not going to absorb so much of this, this, this ocean, uh, ocean carbon type. Interesting how we're both dealing with limitations and contamination. You're basically looking in the rock form, and I'm looking at organic material. We're testing with carbon-14. So those are some parallels in science that, you know, we, we're dealing with in, in two different fields. Man. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Y'all are awesome. Well, I guess uh, not to, I guess, keep this going on forever. Let us try to train. Y'all want to transition to the that freaking rocks and talk about some. Yeah, uh, that freaking rock. Why the rock. freaking rocks? <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> do we need to get like some guitars going and put something there so we can be, be like, awesome. Doo, 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 doo. Yeah. I so. say we record something before our next episode All right. and just make it metal or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like my band. But we're not really. Yeah. As long as it's rock and roll, I'm happy. Just rock out, and I think you guys got it. But yeah. I, I like. And do you got the voice too? You know, that thing rocks. Yeah, that's that when I, rocks. Yeah. When I read that on the beat, I was really excited because honestly, I, I I could talk. You know, so I, I I'll, I'll introduce this. So when I read the seed sheet here, I was really excited because I'm looking at all this stuff, and I'm like, oh, these guys are serious, man. I got to read about plate tectonics. <laughs> <laughs> But we're not. Together, then I'm like, okay, I could talk about me. I could do that's quite easy. And then I'm reading this last section, and it's like, yeah, we like to blend our discussion with rocks and rocking out to music. Yeah. So that the question is, you know, what type of uh, instruments do we find on Rapa Nui? What's the influence from Chile and abroad? Uh, what are some traditional songs for the ancestors? Uh, and and you're right, they about about you know transport songs when they're moving moai. So. I think, you know, we, we're dealing with more ethnomusicology. This is also a field in anthropology that wow. understands uh, the, the, the difference. Because, you know, music allows you to say things that you can't normally say in everyday discourse. Oh, absolutely. So you think about how many songs have been made that talk about really serious political events or political positions that if someone gave a speech, they'd probably be, you know, hung and... and, and, and yeah. but, but Rapa Nui is interesting because although it's so isolated... It's still a place of great of great globalization. So right now, before the pandemic, I believe in 2019, there were some 120,000 people that visited Rapa Nui. Wow. Say that again. The population is 7,000, 8,000, but in one year, we could have 120,000 people visit. The majority come from the United States, and then you have a lot of Chilenos and South Americans, Europeans, and so forth. Because of this, there is a huge diversity of music on the island, okay? Now, some of the influence, we'll start with our influence, some of the influence for the contemporary generations, before we go ancient, is groups like Creedence Clearwater Revival. That's, okay. I, wouldn't, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that on an island no. that's <laughs> in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The American, uh, there was an American military on the base from 1968 to 1971. Okay. And in that yeah. period, the Americans had a lot of equipment and radios. And at that time, obviously, CCRs is pretty awesome as they are today. Fogarty's rocking out and everything's happening. So they really, although they don't understand the majority of my word is being said, it, that, it, it, they, they end up loving that rhythm, that beat. So... CCR, you could be at any party in Rapa Nui. We call them caretes because you're basically racing. You're racing to drink. <laughs> uh, uh, they, they 
CCR will be one of every 11 songs. You'll have wow. some CCR, there, you know? So that's sort of an, an American influence and in, in, in so forth. But because you have the Chilean influence there, we have things like reggaeton that comes in there. You have cumbia. These are very, you know, traditional sort of, not traditional dances, but they're or traditional music, but it's untraditional for Rapa Nui, but it, it sort of comes in and, and changes their beats and changes some of their... Now, obviously, you have an influence from Polynesia in a traditional sense. So we, we know that Polynesians, you know, they didn't have ukuleles. They didn't have the majority. Of that, they have drums, big mm-hmm. temple drums that they can make and small drums. But a lot of times it's percussion instruments, rocks mm-hmm. coming together, different uh, vocal ranges that people will be different singers depending on your vocal range. So, but Tahiti, because it's also a, a big globalized place, they have they love dance music, and they love remixing tunes. So okay. they have this, this sort of, and I'll send you guys some SoundCloud stuff so you can just sort of listen. But it's just sort of this syncretic mix between the old and the new. And I think that's the best way I can describe it. The Rapa Nui music is a mix of the old and the new. Uh, so, you know, you'll be rocking out, and they'll have a CCR song, but they add this really unique techno mix. You know, tropical house, I think, is the term people are using. This yeah, topic. okay. Uh, and, and, and it's beautiful, and I like it. So the other day, I'm, I'm, someone sent me a, a, a playlist, and I'm, you know, I hate to say this, but I do like Journey. And all of a sudden... <laughs> All of a sudden, someone's got this tropical house to do, you know, don't stop believing. And it is, it, 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 it's such a weird thing because I grew up as a wrestler and don't stop believing was the song that they play for the, the march of you going out before you shake hands with your opponent and you get in the, in the medal round there in the, in the gold medal round. Now I'm listening to that same music with an upgrade with this sort of, we call it punchy punchy, which is really in English punch punch because okay. it gives you sort of, you know, this sort of techno feel. And it's got the bass drum going, yeah. You, you got, I'll send you some stuff, you know. And then, yeah. and then they love just random samples. So, you know, a song will be going out there, and then all of a sudden they'll, they'll, they'll hook in, like, you know, um, 50 Cent or Eminem just for a line. You know? so <laughs> okay. It's this really unique, weird sort of group. But then you have more traditional artists that are guitar-based, acoustic. Um, I call it the Nashville of the Pacific. Because on Rapa Nui, we have so many talented artists, uh, and, and not only through singing and songwriting, but also dancing. So it's, it's a real benefit, I think, if you guys make it there and this continues and I can get you guys there as, as geologists, I'll make sure we'll, 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 you know, we'll sample some of the nightlife and we'll do music as All of a sudden, folks just roll up with you know, a guitar. Someone's got a ukulele. Someone shows up with the skull of a, of a cow. Of a cattle, they love oh, playing. That's awesome. It's sort of, bang, it's sort of like a, a, a an elongated note. It's just that bang, bang, bang. So, someone remade in Rapa Nui. They sung the words to "Have You Seen the Rain" by CCR in Rapa Nui. That's so they're cool. you know they're they're translating the words, and then the sound that gives the beat. You have someone that's just hitting the jawbone, the mandible of a cow, to give you that sort of sound. So it's 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 a it's a real unique mix of, of 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 sort of music. So main instruments there right now would obviously be the guitar, the ukulele. But one I wanted to highlight is the accordion. Oh, so, wow. 
the accordion comes in from the German side that there's a lot of German naturalists moved to the south of Chile, especially, you know, before World War II, not people fleeing the, what they did there, but uh -huh. earlier, the 20s and 30s, and there was a huge group of sort of German um, meteorologists and physical scientists that move into the south area of Chile. And you have a lot of missionaries and monks and people moving, and they're bringing the accordion. So in Rapa Nui, when tourism really starts happening, there seems to be an individual that brings a uh, that brings a, um, um, an accordion. They call it Upa Upa. That so this Upa Upa comes, and the individual that saw this individual that bought the, uh, the, the, the Upa Upa, he ended up trading three or four horses to get this instrument. And what he would do is that tourists that were coming to visit Rapa Nui, he would post up outside there and start playing the Upa Upa. And it was a way to attract those that didn't have hotels or were looking for tours. And that man became one of the largest owners of the hotels on the island today. So this instrument comes in radically changes and now in the background most songs that are when they're in a big party someone will always roll up with the uh the upa upa and that gives sort of that little bass in the background That's so awesome. between, the, between the upa upa the ukulele the drums and then the, the remixers you know that that was how i would identify uh Rapa Nui music at, at, at the moment is that word the upa upa is that um indigenous to that area is that their native tongue because it, it sounds like okay i was curious because i i can't remember if in german opa is grandfather so i didn't know if there was a that, correlation it, there it could be i think in this case upa upa is sort of to elongate and to make smaller oh upa, wow when you open and close something so yeah like, you know that they're looking at i think more functional but who knows? Maybe it also has that link into the, and I, I never thought about that. And that's, that, that could be something I could, I can ask this gentleman that, that started the, the accordion revolution on Rapa Nui. <laughs> that's so cool. He's a revolutionary. Question. If we, so say, you know, we go there one day, the nightlife, can they drink geologists and archaeologists under the table? Because we're kind of known in the scientific field as like, Being the hey, we can hold our liquor. <laughs> or that, or that. Yeah. I love this question, you know, you know, we, I, and it, it's a serious note too, you know, because I bet you in your field and, and our, my field, you know, we, and just to get the serious note before the answer, we do, we deal with a lot of alcoholism in our field. Yeah, it is true. It is, it is something very sad. I mean, especially if you were in CRM and cultural resource management that, you know, you're, you're, so CRM, when they're going to put in a new road or a, a you know, railway or they're in a new development, archaeologists usually go in there and they survey to make sure there's no, you know, very important cultural remains. You right. know, different, different phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, and starts from recon, you know, survey to full-blown excavation and mitigation. Depending on what phase, and you're usually drinking more or less <laughs> because you get different sort of uh, stress points. Um, but... Uh, on Rapa Nui, I would say they would uh, be up par because they do like to party. You know, okay. we, we do like to get down. Um, you know, we, when you live on an island, it, it, there is some inherent alcoholism because, honestly, there's just not that much to do. You yeah, know, is it it stress or boredom? Down, <laughs> you know, I don't know. You do it, you rarely see someone drink alone. 
like it's not something that you just sort of hole up in your house and pound a six pack. You know, you you try to invite someone, so you know you're enabling someone in a bit, but it's still <laughs> social. You know, you're you're still social. So I don't think that they 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 would be they wouldn't drink us under the table. We wouldn't drink them, but they would be at the table with us. And That's I think it. that some of my yeah. best conversations about understanding the past of Rapa Nui have come at you know one two three in the morning where yeah. adult beverages have been consumed and everyone is, you know, a little bit, you know, I call that the, the social loop. People are a little more able to talk and they, they bring up new stories. So I have one informant that I make sure well, every time that I bring, when I, when I go see this guy, I make sure I bring a, a six pack. I bring his favorite pack of smokes, you know, and we, yeah. we sit talk and, and he, and he gives me his traditional knowledge as he knows. And I respect him for that. But, the way that we met became our friends were to be able to have a beer together and, and, and hang out. And, and but uh, again, I, just to be on a serious note, those that are interested, you know, you, uh, in, in these, in these type of fields, you know, that is, a, that is a risk, you know, is, yeah. I would say alcoholism, I would say sexual uh, harassment, you know, just, we, 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 we deal with these, these, these are real issues we deal with in our field. And I, I, I do hope in the future there is better sort of, I don't know, um, education about that so when you get you know onboarded onto a to a group you know they, they talk about alcoholism they, they they set boundaries um and and and, and it's, it's it's a weakness in the field i think and you know it's something that you know you, you can discuss from from multiple fields i bet but mm-hmm. archaeologists and geologists we, we like it on the rocks yeah yeah we do <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you're right like we that's that's a good point um like scientists need mental health therapy as well so it's it's a real thing. Um, even just at university when you're attending. Um, so yeah. good point. Yep. Um, yeah. well, I just something to talk about, you know, we, 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 we it's, it's, it's the elephant in the room. Sometimes it's the outcrop in the room. And I just think it's, it's the more we address it and, and, and bring it to, to the, to the forefront, I think it might be easier to, to, to handle. Um, and I, I would say, you know, our mental health or and, and what's happening in a general discussion, like, I find a lot of scientists are, are sort of hurting. You know, there's there's definitely in the move. Uh, there, there's an anti-scientific movement at the moment. Uh, you know, oh there's there's definitely some yeah. that we're not <laughs> experts. And I'm not going to go down that line. We're here to talk about geology and archaeology. But what we find in general, we're really questioning our experts. And I feel yeah. we're going to an Alfred Wagner type of line of life, where you have someone who's dedicating their life. They're coming up with good observations and hypotheses, and they're testing these things. They're sticking to the scientific method as best they can, and because it does, it's not fast. It doesn't produce results so quickly. We're we're looking down upon that stuff. And good science takes time. And I'm going to repeat that. And then good also, science. I think there's a misconception about people. If it doesn't, just because it doesn't uh, align with how you view the world or your lens, that it doesn't make it wrong. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I, and it maybe doesn't make you overtly right that you know everything as well. It's a double-edged sure. sword. Yeah. But I really feel we've lost a little. We people just sort. It seems in general to generalize, we, we, we seem to lost a little faith in our experts. So yeah. you know, I might I might put quote unquote experts, but you know, I I, I I worry for that. So I I the best thing that I can do is lead by example, do good science, integrate with the communities that I work with participate in their outreach activities so they show i show that i'm giving back information and i think that if we follow these these sort of simple protocols of being great scientists but better humans 
I think we, we can we can make some change in this world. Absolutely agree with that. And you coming on the show just to talk with us, two random people that you didn't really know before today. Yeah. <laughs> well, I learned heaps, so I really appreciate uh, you know you taking me through because I'm not I'm not a traditionally trained geologist as well. Oh, you're well versed. Really appreciate- you, 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 <laughs> you went through that for me as well. I mean, my dad is because he he's listening because that that's the other thing. My dad was a scientist as well. He worked at Fermilab. You know, he was he was a police mm-hmm. officer at first, and then he started to do um, sort of cryogenic engineering, and and he as well really helped me understand this method because Fermilab was basically the predecessor to CERN. And they had right. their big, you know, they had their collider and their Tevatron that's working. And to see my dad work in this big lab and understanding what's the hypothesis of the day, what are we testing, who's in the lab, you sort of see this method in, in a really high-end science. Uh, and, and that and that was really great. So it's intergenerational science. You need to teach science to your kids, you know. Absolutely. Teach them the importance because it will serve them their whole life. It's not just science data. It's also how you go about uh, evaluating someone's statement, evaluating their social reality that they have. Uh, and I found the scientific method has really just helped me be a better human being because I don't, I don't go on my gut feeling, you know, I don't go on what, <laughs> don't go on what I, I'm, I'm predisposed to saying. And I think that's the hardest bit of challenging yourself to know what is validity. What, what's the epistemology? How do you know what you know, you know, what is it based on? What's your, what's your data set? What's your facts? What's your sample size? And I think that that has to deal with, you know, one of the problems we have right now. We're just not as inquisitive. Um, yeah. And I, I would love to go back to a world that we're a little more inquisitive. Yeah, and less rapid fire of facts that are, I'm putting quotations up. <laughs> I yeah. like it. I, saw, I, I see what flash. you did there, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I thank you both. Uh, gentlemen, it was, it was outstanding. Thank you for your passion. To You're doing it as well. We're, I think we're Jedi. The three of us are Jedi. <laughs> Right, we're trying to use the good side of the force to to bring about more knowledge, uh, and I, I really appreciate your work. And I, I hope that we can continue. And I could come back in a year, and I'll, I'll have some more information. Or if we want to dial in, you know, something a little more specific uh, in the future, now that I have a general introduction, you know, you, I, I would be honored to be uh, to call back, and we, we can do some more work together if you guys are inclined. No, I would really Absolutely. like that. I would like to talk like the environmental issues the island's facing at a future time. Oh yeah, so, yeah that would be awesome. We really do appreciate it. So grateful, really grateful for this. Me too. Yeah, yeah. Definitely learned a lot, and I know that the listeners will as well. <laughs> All right, so that's been another episode of Keep It On The Rocks. Yeah, Keep It On The Rocks.